Okay, and it is time for Evidence-Based Radio. We are going to start off tonight, um, actually I'm going to start off tonight by remembering to remind you that I do have a presence on Facebook, and so you can find me throughout the week. I try and post things that I think are interesting, um, and so you can find me there, and you can also find previous broadcasts on my website, which is evidence-based errata, which is E-R-R-A-T-A. Um, and so you can find the old uh, episodes there if you have any interest. And so, yeah. Okay. With that, I'm going to start off on a slightly off-topic, slightly sad um, subject, but I do want to talk about this because it's something that I think is extremely important, and it's something that I'm very passionate about. So I wanted to take a moment to talk about Chester Bennington's suicide. So if you haven't heard about this, um, the one of the singers of the band Linkin Park committed suicide this week. And I didn't really listen to their music much, but Linkin Park was recently on an internet show that I watch, actually. Uh, weirdly enough. And so they were on that internet show, which is called Good Mythical Morning. Um, and both he and his partner, whose name I'm, is escaping me at the moment, um, they were both seemed really just nice, genuine, decent uh, people who had great talent. One of the things that they were doing was basically doing off-the-cuff silly songs, and his songs were amazing. They were totally great. He had a song about Cup Noodle and the End of the World uh, being in a nuclear bunker, and you're talk he was talking about how I'm running out of Cup Noodle, and it was just really wonderful, and I thought, this is a really great guy, and so I was really shocked to hear that he had actually done this to himself. And of course, that is part of the problem. So every life lost to suicide is a tragedy. I play the PSA for the suicide uh, lifeline every week for a reason. It's because people don't often realize that someone they love is contemplating suicide even if that someone has a history of depression. Now, there's plenty of people who are very open about it and who, you know, are very dramatic about it. Those people are slightly less likely in some cases to actually do it. And so it's often the people who don't give you any warning who actually go ahead and do it. And so Bennington was actually very open about his struggles and so he struggled with drugs and alcohol and unfortunately uh, also struggled with a some episodes of childhood sexual abuse. And so he definitely was the kind of person who might be more prone to depression, but he seemed to be doing really well from all outward appearances. And so even though he seemed very delightful to people he was interacting with, he was clearly going through inner turmoil. And that's something that we always have to remember is that depression is often a hidden disease and it can be very powerful. It can convince people that they don't have anything to live for. 
even if they are surrounded by loved ones, riches, and fame. Not only Bennington, but also his good friend, Chris Cornell, are the latest high-profile victims of what is usually a quiet epidemic. And so, please, if you or someone you love is contemplating suicide, please seek help. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You can also find them online, obviously. And so I just always want to remind people that they matter. They're important no matter what their inner voice says to them. And they deserve to live. You deserve to live. That is just, it just is. Um, there's nothing that anyone has done that from a day-to-day basis, there's no reason to commit suicide. There's always someone out there for you. And just, I just really wanted to talk about that because I think it's really important. And I think that suicide is something that we all know about, but we don't necessarily talk enough about or know enough about. Okay. So I'd just also like to take a second to say that I do hope that Senator John McCain is able to beat his breast, his brain cancer, not his breast cancer, uh, odd slip of the tongue there. Um, and so I may agree with him on very, very little politically, but cancer is clearly an awful disease and no one should have to deal with it. And um, especially since his brain cancer is unfortunately one that is more aggressive. So unfortunately, I'm not sure how well he is going to do with that. But um, obviously, I don't wish it upon anyone. And one more sort of uh, thing to get out of the way before we get into the meat of the show. A little more, uh, a little less depressing, uh, though not great. So the CDC has put out a report of an outbreak of Salmonella Kiambu linked to yellow Maradol papayas. So if you have any of these yellow papayas, and I looked at the picture, they're very distinct, so you probably know that you have them. Um, the CDC urges you to throw them away and to sanitize any services that they may have come in contact with. And there has actually been at least one case in Massachusetts and a bunch of cases in New York and clustered around this sort of uh, New York metropolitan area. And um, so I do, did want to give people a heads up about that. Uh, papaya is not my personal favorite, so I don't have to worry about it. But other people might definitely be the kind of people who would have such things. And so you definitely don't want to get salmonella. I believe that there has been one death, which is not bad for a salmonella outbreak, but it's still obviously troubling. Okay, so with all of that out of the way, let's move on now to the story about ravens that I hinted at last week. So as you may know, if you listen to the show, I am definitely a fan of crows and ravens. I even have a tattoo of a crow on my left forearm. And so they continue 
to shock us with just how smart they are. I quipped last week that it's a good thing that they don't have opposable thumbs. And I think that that is actually a very true statement. And so the latest research shows that ravens can pass a test wherein the birds exchange tokens to get their favorite foods at a later time, over 90% of the times that they took the trial. And so in a study published by Kan Kabadayi and Matthias Ozvath of Sweden's Lund University, they discovered that ravens are able to solve a pre-planning task that has been failed by pretty much every other animal, including monkeys. Only humans and other higher primates have previously passed the test. And in fact, we'll find out even humans take a while to uh, get it. And so the researchers designed a study in which five birds were taught to use a special tool and to use that to probe a tube sticking out of a box in order to receive a treat, which in this case is a piece of dog kibble that they enjoy. And so the scientists then took the box away and waited an hour. The ravens were then presented with several objects, including the tool from which they could pick. Around 80% of the time, the ravens chose the tool and were able to complete the task when the box was returned around 15 minutes later. Now, when they repeated the study with a 17-hour delay, the ravens improved their success rate to 90%. They even beat out the performance of four-year-olds. Um, and so next, they set up an experiment where the ravens could exchange tokens in order to receive food at a later time. Again, 90% of the time, they passed the test. It is really surprising to see ravens were better at solving two planning tasks than great apes and children presented with similar problems, Alex Taylor, an animal cognition expert at from the University of Auckland in New Zealand, who was not involved in the study, uh, told National Geographic magazine. This is particularly exciting, giving given that the two behaviors, tool use and bartering, are not behaviors that ravens display in the wild, he explained. This suggests that, like humans and great apes, ravens may have a general planning ability that can be used with novel behaviors. And so the third experiment involved presenting the ravens with either a smaller, less desirable piece of food or a token that would allow them to get a better kibble treat at a later time. In 70% of the trials, the crows chose the token rather than the immediate food reward. Now, if you've ever seen videos of the marshmallow experiment uh, with children, you'll know that that's a better percentage by far than most young children can achieve. Um, Basically, what happens is that a researcher will put a child in a room with a single marshmallow and tell them that if they don't eat the marshmallow for some amount of time, that the researcher will come back in and give them a second marshmallow. And you can watch them fail over and over and over again. Um, and so the fact that most of the crews were able to be able to master that is pretty impressive. And so one of the things, though, obviously, is that, and Taylor notes this 
in particular, there could be another explanation. It may be that the ravens aren't really thinking ahead, simply responding to the object they most associate with yummy kibble. But further tests should be able to determine exactly what's going on. Regardless, it's another reminder that we still have a lot to learn about brains, behavior, and just how unique we may or may not be. However, I, for one, welcome our new Corvid overlords. <laughs> okay, so let's move on now and talk about another story related to the brain, sort of, well, fairly uh conclusively. And so this is a story that's been in the news. And so I really wanted to talk about it from a critical perspective, because a lot of people are not looking at it critically, they're looking at it very much at face value and very much as a miracle. And it's definitely something that is very, very wonderful. I'm extremely happy that this happened. But I don't want people to decide that this means that it would happen for anyone else. Because unfortunately, sometimes unique recoveries just happen. Okay, so <laughs> let me actually tell you what I'm talking about. So you may have heard that a young lady named Eden Carlson fell into her family's pool back in February of 2016 and, well, drowned. She lay unresponsive in an Arkansas hospital for the next 35 days until Dr. Paul G. Harsh from the U Louisiana State University School of Medicine decided to intervene and to attempt to treat the girl with pure oxygen to breathe um, until he was able to move her from the hospital she was in to another hospital where he would be able to put her in a hyperbaric chamber and give her hyperbaric oxygen. And so after 162 days of treatment, including 40 sessions of the high-pressure hyperbaric oxygen treatment, or HBOT, Hart reported that the girl was able to walk and that much of her brain damage was reversed. Now again, this is indeed a wonderful result. Um, it remains to be seen how much cognitive and uh, physical function she will retain and be able to keep and... It will, we'll have to see if she actually does end up being neurotypical at a later date. Unfortunately, we can't be positive of that at this time. Um, however, again, we must be cautious about jumping to the conclusion that the HBOT was the cause of her recovery. This is a case report published in the journal Medical Gas Research by a researcher already involved in promoting HBOT therapy. Now, again, this isn't to say that it may not lead to more research that confirms a link, but rather we just have to be cautious that one case study does not confirm that this should be the expected outcome of such therapies. Because there have been studies that show little to no effect in some uh, brain injury cases. Now, we do know that HBOT therapy is beneficial for treating gas poisoning, certain infections, and what people normally think of it as treating, which is the bends, uh, which is a condition that divers get when they come up too fast through the water column. And what happens is that they end up with too much nitrogen in their blood, and it causes a ton of pain and can be really debilitating and can actually lead to death. 
Um, but anything beyond that is still in question. And one of the reasons that I'm kind of worried about this is that uh, HBOT has been touted by a lot of people as being a new alternative medical practice and could possibly treat a host of other ailments, including Alzheimer's, depression, sports injuries, and the one that disturbs me the most, uh, autism. And so it's an important, it's important to keep in mind that a few compelling narratives do not equal science. I am extremely glad that Eden Carlson has recovered from her injuries um, as well as she has, and hopefully she will be able to lead a healthy life. But we must be cautious about seeing this as proof of HBOT treatments. One must, for instance, note that children of that age have a much larger degree of brain plasticity and that recovering from brain injuries is thus much more plausible with or without other interventions. We also know that some people have been able to overcome rather large brain injuries in order to regain lost functions, sometimes even without other interventions. And as I noted when talking about our friends, the smart ravens, there's still a lot we don't even know about the brain and cognition. And there are, in fact, risks involved with HBOT treatment. The FDA reports that the treatment can cause paralysis or air embolisms, which if you've ever watched a murder mystery, you know, can lead to death. Um, and so just take this case with a grain of salt. Okay, so we're going to talk about one more story that has to do with the brain, and then we're going to switch over to robots. <laughs> so um, let me remind you that, for instance, we use far more than 10% of our brain. Every Hollywood movie that uses that trope gets a thumbs down from me. And so while there are some extreme cases of people who function normally with severely reduced brain volume, generally we're using all of our brain, just not necessarily all at the same time. Now, of course, this and other brain myths have a really persistent hold on, on many people, even those who should know better. So in fact, a new U.S. survey published in the journal Frontiers in Psychology, showcases how some myths just won't go away. Kelly McDonald at the University of Houston and colleagues, including Lauren McGrath at the University of Denver, recruited 3,877 volunteers to take a survey of brain myths on the website testmybrain.org. And so the sample included 3,045 members of the general public, 598 teachers, and 234 teachers with what was deemed high neuroscience exposure, which the study defines as having completed a number of college or university courses related to the brain or neuroscience. So the survey was composed of 32 statements about the brain, 14 of which were true and 18 of which were false. And they found what might be expected— the general public believed the most myths followed by teachers and then those with neuroscience training. And so, as I noted before, all three groups held on to several myths. 
And so, for instance, the myth that people are either right-brained or left-brained. They found that 64% of the general public, 49% of teachers, and 32% of neuroscience participants believed in the idea that you can either be analytic or creative and sometimes not both at the same time. Now, there is good evidence to suggest that the two hemispheres of the brain are responsible for different kinds of processing. And so a lot of this work comes from um, split brain research. And so there are people who actually don't have a connection between the two hemispheres of their brain. And so um, you may have heard of some of these famous cases where you can have somebody who does something on one side and will tell a story about what's happening based on a perception outside of what is reality because they can't see what's going on in the other part of their vision because it's controlled by the other part of their brain. And there's all sorts of very interesting and weird things that you can learn from split brain patients. However, the vast majority of people have the two hemispheres are actually connected. And so in a normal person, the brain is connected by the corpus callosum. And so this helps the brain function as a whole rather than as two independent halves. And of course, the reality about how we process information is infinitely more complicated than just a standard and a standard black and white divide. Now, of course, the problem is, is that the one thing that can be said uh, pretty consistently about the human brain is that it actually loves the idea of putting things into black and white boxes and doesn't like the messy reality that things are rarely that easily divided. And so many, the myth is surrounded around, so moving on, many of the, many myth, the myth is surrounded around children. And so two such myths have some really strong staying power. I've heard about these for, for years and years and years. The myth that listening to classical music increases children's reasoning ability is one. Um, and this is often referred to as the Mozart effect. And so it was endorsed by a whopping 43% of those trained in neuroscience, 55% of teachers, and 59% of the public. Now, while it's true that listening to Mozart, or it turns out any music you enjoy for that fact, can temporarily help your ability to mentally manipulate shapes. However, the effect only lasts about 15 minutes. <laughs> and so if you really want to have an effect on your IQ, you need to do something a bit more proactive, like learning how to play a musical instrument. Um, but just listening to music won't actually do anything for your IQ. It only ever helped in the studies that popularized this with one kind of spatial manipulation where someone had to look at a piece of paper and tell what kind of shape would be 3D, would become 3D from that piece of paper. And so, and also as you may or may not know, the study was not actually conducted on children. It was conducted on young adults. Usually most studies are, this is actually sort of a problem in a lot of classic studies, is that a lot of work is done 
basically in colleges. And so they use college students as their samples, which, you know, they're there and it makes sense. However, what's true for the typical college student isn't necessarily true for your typical baby. <laughs> and so, yeah, it, this is definitely one of those myths that sounded good to people, that it made sense to people. And so it just basically took hold and has not left the popular zeitgeist. Okay, so this next one is one that I find particularly galling because I know it's not true and people are so almost invested in the fact that it is true that it's really hard to make people understand that it is actually not true. And so this is the myth that sugar consumption can lead to hyperactivity in children. So this had a rating of 59%, 50 and 39% of belief in the respective categories. So public to neuroscience. And so well-designed studies have shown that giving children sugar does not have an effect on them. Rather, it has an effect on parents who believe the myth. And so in one study, 35 boys between the age of five and seven, whose mothers believed them to be quote unquote sensitive to sugar, were given a placebo. However, half of the mothers were told that they had been given sugar. And so when the research asked, researchers asked the mothers to evaluate the behavior of their sons, they found that those who believed their children had been given sugar, quote, rated their children as significantly more hyperactive, according to the study. And so pediatric researcher Mark Walrich conducted a study as well, in which 48 children were put on diets, either high in sugar or artificial sweeteners. After a observation by both parents and researchers, little difference was found between the two groups. While these are both smaller studies and thus could possibly be uh, open to uh, bias, a 1995 meta-analysis of 23 different studies, led again by Walrich, concluded that Sugar does not affect the behavior or cognitive performance of children. The strong belief of parents may be due to expectancy and common association. So what they write is that a lot of times when children are exposed to large doses of sugar, they're also at things like birthday parties or special events where they are more likely to be already more keyed up and more apt to be rambunctious and hyperactive because of the setting, not necessarily because they're eating more sugar than they normally would. Now, of course, this isn't carte blanche to give children sugar. Uh, there are plenty of reasons to still limit the intake of sugar for children, but hyperactivity is not one of them. And so... The last pervasive myth concerns the idea that seeing letters backward can be a sign of dyslexia. This isn't one I'd actually really encountered. I don't know much about dyslexia, to be honest. Um, but it turns out that dyslexia is not, as many people apparently commonly believe, simply seeing letters or words in reverse. It is actually a deeper problem of parsing language, and some actually suggest it's caused by an inability to parse phonemes. And so phonemes 
are the smallest unit of language that still contains meaning. And so, in fact, reverse letter reading or writing can be no more common in people with dyslexia than in others without any cognitive issues. And so um, up until about age six, it's pretty standard across the board. And then most people, most children get over it. Uh, those with dyslexia might have a little bit of a harder time getting over it, but not all that much. And yet the breakdown of percentages for this myth was 76, 59, and 50 who were surveyed who believed that this was indeed a mark of dyslexia. So overall, the researchers found that participants exposed to neuroscience endorsed 46% of the overall myths, teachers endorsed 56%, and the general public 68%. And they found that people who believe in one myth were unsurprisingly likely to believe in more than one myth. And so me... Believing these myths is especially dangerous because, again, many of them relate to children's education. And so the researchers suggested that even those who have studied neuroscience might not have also studied the related effects of psychology, which could be part of the problem. These findings suggest that if educators were to take a class in neuroscience that did not specifically address neuromyths, it would be unlikely to help with dispelling the misconceptions that are most closely related to learning and education. And so the researchers noted that there were some um, issues with the study. For instance, the sample was actually comprised of people who were more highly educated than the average U.S. citizen, which actually may indicate an underestimation of the prevalence of myths, especially in the general public. Now, in addition, the neuroscience group self-reported their education, and therefore the researchers could only speculate on the courses that they may have taken. And of course, as finally... And of course, finally, as noted before, dichotomies such as black, white, true, false, often mask the nuances that are really inherent in people's thinking. And so it might be that if you asked a more open-ended question, people would have a more nuanced answer rather than just true or false. Okay, so let us take a break and do a little bit of PSAs and show promos, and then we'll come back and we will talk about robots. So hang on for just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking 
and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hi, my name's Leo, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ, and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? You can't assume someone's gender. Based on their clothes. Based on their hair. Based on their voice. Who they hang out with. Who they're attracted to. My gender isn't your business. Ask me my pronouns! Brought to you by the PVPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity. Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt. Forbes Library offers free access to computers, and now they are equipped with tools to make them easier to use if you are blind or have low vision. When you come into Forbes Library, you will find computers with JAWS screen reading and magnification software installed. Trained library staff are available to get you started. These services were brought to you with federal funds provided by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and administered by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners. Call 413-587-1012 to find out more. Listen up, employers. Veterans can be a great asset to your company or organization. Veterans have gained skills in leadership, teamwork, and performance under pressure. Veterans have received the very best training in their fields and are never afraid to tackle a tough situation to accomplish the mission. If you are looking to hire a veteran, the Department of Labor can help you make it happen. You hire a veteran today, you won't be sorry. Nine Volt Heart is a music program filled with contemporary roots music with heavy doses of new grass and Americana goodness. It comes to you live every Saturday from 3 to 5 p.m. on WXOJ-FM, Valley Free Radio. The focus of the show is current releases in American string music with a large portion of the show dedicated to who's coming to the Pioneer Valley. Expect lots of interviews, in-studio guests, and ticket giveaways. My name is Ed Malachowski. I'm the host of Nine Volt Heart. Tune in every Saturday afternoon for the best in Americana and newgrass music. Hi, I'm Ruthie, and I have a recorder. Stick them up. <laughs> Listen to Out There on Wednesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. here on Valley Free Radio for interviews and snippets of life from the paths and streets of Northampton. You can hear past editions of Out There archived at weatherbeard.com slash out there. Hey, kids. It's Archie and Dave from Pothby Geekery. What are you doing, Dave? You're listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJ 103.3 FM in Northampton, Massachusetts. Bye. Okay, and so we are back, and we are going to switch gears, like I said, and talk about robots. 
And so, of course, much has been said about robots in the last few years. Uh, you can find out all sorts of things about robots from the most uh, basic robots to the frankly slightly scary uh humanoid robots um some of them for things that i don't necessarily approve of um <laughs> you can go to vice if you want to learn more about that but um i want to talk about some simple robots some very cool uh small scale robots that are doing new kinds of things so instead of trying to replicate a human, researchers at the IT University of Copenhagen are building robots to do things that humans can't. And so they built what they describe as a 1D printer, which creates simple, on-demand robots using wire and basic components to accomplish specific actions. And so the team, led by Associate Professor Sebastian Rissi, of the university's Robotics Evolution and Art Lab, or REAL, created a machine that forms small robots out of wire in a similar fashion to that of an industrial wire bending machine. And so the printer extrudes lengths of thin metal, which are then bent and crimped to create specific shapes that can be used as limbs or tools. And it also adds small cylindrical motors to give the robot the ability to move. And so these are very simple machines, but the researchers think that they could be used, for instance, to get into tight spaces where either with either a micro camera or a sensor array, um, which would allow you to view places that are not able to be explored by humans. Um, and so, for instance, the inside of pipes um, or in disaster rubble. And so what's neat about these little robots is that they don't need to be designed one by one by a human. The team has actually developed an algorithm that can design a robot for use based on a set of specific requirements and constraints. So for instance, you tell it it needs to fit into a one inch uh, wide pipe and it needs to do X, Y, or Z, and then it will work on creating a robot that can do that. And what's really cool is that it has the ability to learn from its mistakes and to use that to improve on a prototype until it gets it correct. And so the beautiful thing about that is that mistakes can be easily recycled by simply straightening out the wire. And so this autonomous replication ability could be as well useful in places that are much harder to get to, such as space. And so, for instance, if a rover had a 1D printer aboard, it could use the printer to design on-the-fly robots to explore unexpected terrain or to complete unanticipated actions. And so one of the things I like about this is that it really kind of is a distillation of the idea that sometimes simple is best. Sometimes you don't have to think about something really complicated. You just make a little wire and robot that does what you need it to do and you don't have to worry about it and it's easily replaced, it's easily recycled, and just a very neat idea. Okay, 
And so another team of researchers, this one from the Weiss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering and the John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Science, or SEAS, at Harvard University, have been working on improving another kind of small, relatively simple robot. These robots, inspired by Japanese origami, are able to be folded up and then unfold themselves in order to complete a task. Now, up until now, they had had a major drawback. They required batteries or an electric motor in order to function. And so, led by Mustafa Boyvat, the researchers derived several systems that use heat and magnetism to move. And so they designed several robots, including a quarter-sized flat tetrahedral robot based on a six uh, on a spherical six-bar origami pattern, and a hand-sized paper ship robot, which actually goes into a bottle and is actually able to raise its sails uh, once it's in the bottle. And so they used two kinds of materials in the joints, coils of what is referred to as shape memory alloys, um, which allow the structure to return to its original shape when heated, and miniature circuits that become energized by various levels of magnetic resonance frequencies. And so the research, published in the journal Science Robotics, details how the team was able to use these joint elements to fold and unfold the robots. They were even able to fold different joints at the same time by using overlapping magnetic fields. Like origami, one of the main points of our design is simplicity, noted co-author Ji-sung Ko in a statement. This system requires only basic passive electronic components on the robot to deliver an electric current. The structure of the robot itself can take care of the rest. And so one of the ways these robots could be used is in medical applications. Without the need for batteries or motors, the robots could potentially be used in biomedical research applications or in biomedical applications, such as for targeted drug therapies or even as microscalpels or other simple tools. We believe that these demonstrations illustrate the viability of collections of wirelessly powered and controlled functional origami robots and devices, noted the authors in the study. One potential use involves origami-based medical device devices operating remotely inside the human body without the need for energy storage or control electronics. And so Boyvat and his colleagues plan to continue scaling the robots down until they can be used for such applications. And so maybe someday these little origami inspired robots will save your life or mine. Um, and that will be a very cool result. And finally, speaking of robots, those amazing Afghani young women who were able at the last minute to be able to come to the U.S. and compete with their ball sorting robot just won silver medals. And so their robot was designed to collect blue and orange balls and to quickly sort them into separate compartments. And so obviously these were young women who just wanted to come and compete and they were twice denied visas 
Um, and it's just, you know, heartbreaking to hear some of them talk. And so um, Fatima Gadarian, who is 14, uh, noted that we were not a terrorist group to go to America and scare people. We just wanted to show the power and skill of Afghan girls to America, Americans. And I would say that they did just that. Um, and so they won the silver medal in the courage category. Um, rather unsurprisingly, the team from South Sudan won the gold uh, for courage because if there's one place that's worse, unfortunately, uh, than uh, Afghanistan, it's unfortunately South Sudan, um, where they have been just dealing with years and years of civil war and famine and just some of the worst uh, just atrocities. And so... That other team, the team from South Sudan, I also very much, my heart goes out to them. And so the nice thing about this was that it was a truly international competition. There were teams from around the world, including a Syrian team, uh, which named its robot RoboG in recognition of their refugee status. Uh, Unfortunately, all three members of the team were forced to flee to Lebanon uh, three years ago. And the Afghan team's robot is called Better Idea of Afghan Girls, uh, which is definitely something that I think it was able to do. This robot definitely helps to show that these young women are strong, intelligent, and fearless. And so former Congressman Joe Seastack, uh, the president of FIRST, which is the organization that hosted the competition, summed up its goals pretty well. He said, I truly believe our greatest power is the power to convene nations, to bring people together in the pursuit of a common goal and prove that our similarities greatly outweigh our differences. And I definitely could not agree more. The more we can bring young people from across the world together, the better chance we'll have for a peaceful future. Um... And yeah, so I definitely want to commend them a thousand percent for persevering and for really breaking the mold and also for continuing to be themselves. Um, They did accept their award in traditional uh, Muslim wear. And so um, they're obviously, um, these young women are Muslim and There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. They are just lovely young women who wanted a chance to show how cool their robot is. Who can't, who doesn't love that? Everybody has to love that. (laughs) I demand it. (laughs) Okay. And so let us now switch gears and talk about something that we've talked about before, which is the space probe New Horizons. And so we talked about this wonderful space probe a lot uh, last year when it was making incredible history, bringing back just stunning pictures of um, Pluto and just teaching us all sorts of things about Pluto that we had no idea about uh, until New Horizons got out there. And so some people might think that, well, its job was done at that point. And so now, like Voyager, it's simply floating off into the far distance. 
but New Horizons is actually slated to do a bit more science before it begins its retirement trip into those far reaches of space. And so on January 1st, 2019, New Horizons will rendezvous with a Kuiper Belt object named MU-69. And so this unassuming chunk of rock is from the extremely early solar system. And other than that, not much is known about it, except some people think it might be red. (laughs) And so it will become the farthest object ever to be visited by a spacecraft. Um, And so obviously we hope to learn more about, well, everything (laughs) about it, uh, since this small, dim, extremely rock is extremely hard to see. And so scientists believe it's only about 20 to 30 miles in diameter. Uh, As I mentioned, they also think it's dark red. And obviously they note that it is immensely far away. But it turns out that it's not quite impossible to see the Earth, um, or see from the Earth, I should say. And so NASA scientists managed to pull it off. It was the most historic oculation on the face of the Earth noted NASA planetary scientist Jim Green in a statement. You pulled it off and you made it happen. Um, And so that you is Mark Bowie uh, and his team. And so Mark Bowie, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correct, uh, is an astronomer at Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado. And so he and a team of 60 observers traveled to the region of Chubut and Santa Cruz in Argentina. And there they set up an array of two dozen mobile telescopes in order to see the shadow of MU-69 as it transited in front of a distant unnamed star. Now, despite bad conditions, the NASA scientists hit it out of the ballpark. They managed within a fraction of time to record not one, but five occultations of the star. And so basically an occultation is when an object goes in front of a star and causes it to dim. Um, So the object was going in front of the star. um, And obviously they're not in the same region. The star is much further away, but it's in the same line of sight from the earth as the uh, object. Now, the the resolution from a sort of standard point of view is terrible. I'm not going to lie. I looked at the footage of a tiny bit of it online several times and couldn't actually figure out what the heck I was looking at. But it turns out that it's good enough for the researchers to be able to learn more about this object. Um, And so that'll be really great to learn more before New Horizons gets there. But what I really, really love about this story is actually sort of the uh, human uh, interest part of it. And so uh, Bowie himself uh, has expressed his gratitude to the people of Argentina and especially the Comodoro Rivadavia community who really made the science possible. And so he says the Comodoro Rivadavia, Rivadavia community came together into and did some amazing things for us. I've been calling the people who helped us our 12th player. The local people were a major team player. And so apparently the team was helped not just by Argentinian scientists and government officials, but the entire community. So on the night of the occultation, a major national highway was graciously shut down for two full hours to avoid the light pollution of car headlights 
and also all of the streetlights were turned off in the area. But in addition to that, a fierce wind was blowing, so locals actually parked their trucks in strategic areas in order to act as a windbreaker. And so I'm really happy that the local people were so committed to and interested in the science being done, because that is really, really the kind of story that just warms your heart. It's so good that people are able to say that they, or it's so good to be able to read about how someone has actually you know, really bought into the idea that this is an important thing that is going on. And so I am very excited about that. And I'm very excited to see more from this and find out what kind of new data that they find out. Okay, so I just want to finish off tonight with a sort of shake of my head idea. Uh, a uh, shake of my head story, wherein it turns out that Chipotle, which I may have mentioned before, is a uh, place that you should never eat at, uh, if at all possible, because they are notorious for spreading uh, neurovirus and all sorts of other nasty bugs. And apparently there has been another uh, safety scare. And instead of doing things like uh, actually improving uh, safety food safety, as far as I can tell, um, though I may be wrong, I'm just speculating, uh, or, you know, doing things like ceasing to demonize foods that are perfectly healthy and nutritious, uh, that just happen to be created in labs rather than, uh, by conventional breeding. Instead of all of that, they are spending money to, uh, hire, the Wu-Tang Clan's rapper RZA. And what they did was they actually had him design little sound clips for every one of their uh, ingredients. And so you can, he created 51 snippets of music, uh, each one for each ingredient on the menu. And so it lets people do an audio interpretation of their order. It doesn't actually let them order anything um but it you know it's a fun little thing to do i guess while you're possibly getting neurovirus um yeah i definitely do not eat at chipotle there are so many other better uh restaurants in the valley to go to uh even better fast service food uh, places. So I definitely do not recommend uh, going there. But again, as always, the views and opinions expressed here are mine and mine alone. Um, your mileage may vary. There are people who love Chipotle and have never had any problems, but I'm just not going to risk it. And I also just don't like uh, patronizing uh, businesses that do not uh, respect people who actually produce food and don't respect uh, farmers who are just trying to make a living um, by growing food that Chipotle has deemed uh, verboten. Okay, well, anyways, that is all for tonight. Um, and please do stay tuned, however, for civil politics coming up next. 
I will, uh, programming note, I will not be here next weekend, um, next Friday. Unfortunately, I will be on vacation with my autistic nephew. I'm very excited, um, but I'll be back in two weeks. So have a good one. Good night.